This is our last installment here of Ecclesiastes. We went out of order last week. We did the very last section um, last week, because, uh, two weeks ago, because a number of our youth were at focus two weeks ago, and this passage for today has a lot to say to youth, so I wanted to wait um, and do that till this Sunday. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter number 11, we be, we'll begin at verse number 7 and end at 12, chapter 12, verse 8. I do want to say one last thing on prayer. Uh, my, my daughter, I was sitting over here with my daughter, and she says, she takes the, uh, the worship service that we give uh, to people who are going to be on stage, and she says, Daddy, prayer said two minutes. It was five minutes. Okay, well, a couple of things, babe. Number one, that's just there because planning center put it there. We don't go by the, t the amount of time on here at all because they put like 35 minutes for the sermon. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> oh, Lord, yeah. Well, wait a minute. Why are y'all laughing? I just realized y'all laughing at me, not with me. <laughs> that's the first thing. And the second thing, I, I, I wanted to tell my daughter, I, was, I forgot, I dismissed her before I had an opportunity. Um, and I want, but maybe you had some of the same thoughts. At the Bridge Church, we intentionally take time to pray unhurried without harrying ourselves. It is intentional. If your legs get tired, sit. If you get distracted while we're praying, you start praying in your place. See, we will make time for all the stuff that we really like, music. And all, this, all that kind of stuff. But prayer in the church at large has just become an element of transition. That's why so many churches walk during prayer. Because that's the time when you have your eyes closed and your heads down, or at least that's what we expect of you. And so we say, now you can move because we don't want, you can get off the stage and everything because that way you're not a distraction to people. And I'm not trying to say those church, churches doing wrong. Or that, let's not go there today. Not in the mood. As for me, I'm saying that prayer is a time we get to speak to God. Here's the way the old hymn used to say it. Just tell him all about your troubles. He'll hear your faintest cry and answer by and by. And just a little talk with Jesus will make everything all right. This is an opportunity for us to show our dependence on God. So, because I know I pray a while. And that's because I want us to be a church of prayer. I want us to be known as a praying church. So yeah, we may take a while to pray, and we may forget to tell you to sit down. If, that, if your legs are just that tired, do it. Now, here's the thing, though. Don't you go to Wichita State basketball game and stand the whole time. <laughs> or, huh, Aggieville, <laughs> who would want to stand for that? Okay, I was trying to make a point. I'm sorry. But I, I, honestly, I'm, because we do have, uh, I, I want our, 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 our new friends with us to know that we, we are intentional and serious 
about prayer. I think it's the missing element in the church. We've just forgotten. We, you, you can actually, I'm about to get to the text, I promise you. You can actually have a successful church without God in America. And that is sad. This has nothing to do with Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. We'll talk about that some more in the next series. If you would, stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. I am aware that Pastor Josh has read it. Um, but here at the Bridge Church, we say that if you want to hear God speak, read his word. It is when we hear God's word and read God's word that we hear God speak the clearest. So Ecclesiastes chapter number 11, verse number 7. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. The doors on the street are shut. Where the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all of the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The, the grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities says the preacher, all is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are experiencing a global epidemic in regard to our youth. Our children are being robbed of their childhood. 
Let me give you a few examples. My son is not with us this morning. He's in Houston, Texas at the John Lucas basketball tournament. He is part of an AAU team. I bring this up because I read an article and I saw on Cake News that youth sports is now a $15 billion industry. B as in boy, by the way. Here's what, what has happened now in the arena of youth sports. They practice multiple times per week. We, there's, we pay and we have to give time to private training. There's games. There's traveling. And for many youth, their childhood is spent loving a game that is temporary. Many a child are being robbed of just being a child because of sports. If it's not sports, then it's being a celebrity. People like Macaulay Culkin will tell you that he was robbed of being a child because he had to give his childhood to being a child actor. Some of our children are being robbed of their childhood because they don't have the opportunity to be children because they have to be the adults in the house. You would be surprised to know in this community alone the number of adolescents who are raising their siblings. They are the ones to wake them up for school in the morning. They are the ones to make sure they have breakfast. They are the ones that iron their clothes, change their diapers. They are the ones to make sure everyone gets home and has dinner. We've got a number of kids raising kids now. They're being robbed of their childhood, the joy of their childhood. What are we to think about this as the body of Christ? How are we to mold our own children, decipher our, our own children and youth in light of this epidemic in our world? I'm glad you asked. That's what the preacher has to say to us now. The first two verses of this section sets the agenda for the entire unit. Verse 7 begins with a proverb about life. Here's what he says. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see sun. The proverb is then followed by a practice. Here's, he gives us the practice in verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Two practices are found in verse 8. Rejoice and remember. And those are the two emphases for this entire section. 
So I've got two points for you today. You're welcome since the Wichita State Shockers are playing at this moment. That was a joke. I bet you they go further than KU. Rejoice and remember are the two points of our sermon today. To understand these first two verses, verse 7 and 8, we have to observe that light and darkness are opposites. And so they represent, they stand in the place of something else. In this section of Ecclesiastes, light represents youthful living. And darkness represents older age. And so the preacher's point here is that life is indeed a blessing and worth enjoying. You may find that interesting given that the preacher has told us that we all are living vain lives. The preacher has already said everything is vanity of vanities. It seems to be, be very pessimistic. But the preacher here says, let me make something clear. I want you to know my whole point is that joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning is found in God and him alone because everything else is temporary. Everything else is but a vapor. It's it's here today and gone tomorrow, but God is eternal. He says, so yes, life is indeed worth living. And you should enjoy every day of it. And so his point here is that we should enjoy our youthful days, but remember that the effects of old age can be miserable. Let's look at more in depth at these two practices of rejoicing and remembering. In verse 9, the preacher speaks directly to young people, and he says, Rejoice, O young man, or young person. Now, Before you think this sermon is primarily for people 18 and younger, let me stop you right there. Because the principles that the preacher is about to show us applies not only to those 18 or younger, but they can be for young adults, the middle age, those who are young at heart. So listen closely. The preacher will give us a description in a moment of those who he seemed to be characterized as those experiencing the effects of older age. And so the preacher, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. So how, preacher, should we indeed enjoy our life? Well, He tells us, first of all, rejoice in your youth. He said, the way you are to rejoice in your youth, first of all, is to run after holy passions. You rejoice and you enjoy your youth by running after holy passions. Look look, look at verse 9. He says, walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. Now, before I tell you, What this verse means, let me tell you what this verse does not mean. First of all, if you're not careful, you may take the preacher's charge here to mean just follow your heart. And friends, hear me well. 
That is some of the worst and most dangerous advice that you can give or receive. Never just follow your heart. Why would you say that, preacher? I'm glad you asked. Here's what the Bible has to say about our heart. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 39, here's what the Lord says. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And the tassel for, will be for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them. Here it is, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which are inclined to whore after. The Lord himself says to his chosen people, don't follow your heart because your heart will only lead you to unfaithfulness and idolatry. All right, you need some more evidence of why you should not just simply follow your heart. Here's what Jeremiah wrote in chapter 17, verse 9 of his book. He, he, he just comes right out and says it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me give you, uh, let me help you real quick. Where he uses that word deceitful, it's Jacob in, the, in Hebrew. It's where we get the name Jacob from. You remember Jacob, don't you? The heel grabber? His name means tricky or trickster. Deceitful. And when Jeremiah says the heart is desperately sick, that word in the original means incurable. Friends, we are born with a heart bent on doing evil and rebelling against God's will and God's ways. We inherit that from our parents, Adam and Eve. In theology, we call that original sin. We, we are prone to do evil. Our hearts are proud. They're selfish, and they love self-autonomy. This is why we should never just follow our heart, because our hearts are deceitful and full of idolatry. Well, that's depressing. Since we are born with an incurable, evil heart, is there any hope for us? I'm glad you asked. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 through 27, here's what God says. He says, I will give you a new heart. <laughs> Then put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Friends, for this incurable, evil heart, we need a heart transplant. And that's exactly what God promises to do. He says, I'm going to remove this incurable evil heart that you received from the first Adam because I'm sending you a second Adam. Ooh, now I feel, I feel it in here now. He, 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 he says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And so you may be wondering here, how do I get that heart transplant? Jesus said, you got to be born again. 
The first time you're born, you have this incurable evil heart. But when you are born again through the blood of Jesus Christ, he gives you a new heart that can run after holy passions. When we are born again, we receive this new heart and this new spirit, which is the fulfillment of the new covenant. That's what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we just partook in. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So now that we've talked about what it doesn't mean, let me tell you what it actually means. When he preacher says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, he's saying that we should pursue the desires and the passions in our heart, but these passions that are in our heart have been placed there by God for his glory. We need to run after holy passions, passions that are set apart for the praise and glory of God. If the pursuit of a passion is for selfish reasons, for your own glory, it's not a holy passion. Let me just stop here and be very, very practical for both our youth and some of our, our, our older people as well. Some of you, God has put desires and passion in your heart, and that's been for a specific vocation, but yet you are not pursuing that. I was talking to my nephew back at home. And uh, coming up, my, my mom, she, she makes very little money, and so he's lived in, in that situation. Now, the boy would know he was poor uh, based on the, the way my mama spoils him, but he just feels like if I can just go to college, college and get a degree, I'll make a lot of money and I'll have a happy life. And I had to share with him, I said, you are looking at somebody that went to college got a degree, and made a good, a decent amount of money and was miserable most of his adult life. Money alone cannot buy you peace, joy, contentment, and fulfillment. Actually, one theologian said it like this, more money, more problems. I'm not, again, let me, let me make something very clear. Make as much money as the Lord would allow you. God is not anti-money. He, sometimes he blesses Solomon. God loved him, gave him a lot of money. Job, Bible says he was upright, had a lot of assets. God is against you loving money. Because you can't love money and love God. It is impossible. The two can't occupy the same heart. You'll either love one and hate the other. And so I need to say to some of you in here, you are pursuing certain vocations, certain desires, and certain passions just for the money, and it is causing you to be miserable. It's because you are living outside of what God has uniquely created you to do. And somebody in here needs to be liberated to thinking, you know what, but we got to have this money. We got all these children now, and we got this certain lifestyle. I, I got to have a certain amount of money. Follow your passions, and if it causes you to uh, 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 make less money, live a more simple life. Y'all don't pay me enough for all this good stuff I'm giving you right now. We think, we've been, listen, the biggest trick 
the most deceptive thing that we ha ha have been taught in our culture that has created so much uh, stress and anxiety is this idea of the American dream. It's a ruse. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have an American dream, you have a kingdom dream. And your kingdom dream is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all the things that you think you need and want, God says, I'll give you what you need. I want to make sure you understand, all work has dignity. All work has dignity. If you're not careful in this culture, we, we, will be, we, we, can be, uh, uh, we can think that the only jobs that have real dignity are those of doctors and lawyers and engineers and those types of things. Look, I thank God for them. God uses doctors and lawyers and engineers and judges and all those kinds of things for his glory all the time. But all work has meaning. I don't care if it's the local McDonald's. It has dignity in it. Because God created man before the fall. He gave them work to do. And so for some, God has put passions in your heart. For some, he's put the passion desire just to serve people. And so you're going to work with your hands. That ain't me. But he's put some of your, you will work with your hands. And God says, and I'm telling you, go pursue a vacation that allows you just to simply serve people. Now, I'm not saying don't think about money at all. We've got to be wise about that. That's what one of the major things of Ecclesiastes have been. But if you try to live life solely for money, you will be miserable. Because here's what people with money have told me. I don't, it's never enough. I'm just telling you what they said. You're always chasing the next best thing. And so I just want to liberate some people right now. And let me make something very clear. I'm not anti-college at all. It was liberating for me. I, I, I'm thankful for God sending me to Texas A&M University. But what God put in Brandon he called me to be the pastor of a local church. And I didn't find joy and contentment until I stopped chasing the money, because I knew it wasn't a whole bunch of ministry, until I stopped chasing the money and just fulfilled the calling that was on my life. And so the preacher is saying to us, if you're going to have a good life, if, you, if you're going to have a, enjoy your life, you've got to walk after the desires of your heart that God has already put in you. Run after holy passions. Now, here's the thing. The preacher, he seems to have just kind of said, yeah, we can do almost anything we want. But he's, he says, but wait a minute. Let me remind you of this. Verse 9. But no. Excuse me. <laughs> but no. That for, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. The preacher has already said, enjoy life. 
He's already said, enjoyment is a gift from God. He's told us to enjoy life, but he says, let me make sure you understand something. As you enjoy life, enjoy it responsibly. Because there is moral accountability before God for everything we do. Therefore, live it up, but don't mess it up. Let me make something very clear. The, the preacher is not trying to temper our joy in life, but he's trying to give direction for our joy in life. Find joy in the right things. Don't seek joy in drugs, promiscuity, pornography, sexting, and the like. But seek joy in the things that God approves. So run after holy passions. Recognize that God will judge every action. Thirdly, he says, to enjoy life, there's something else you got to do that's crucial. Verse 10, remove worry and pain. Look at it. Verse 10, the preacher says, in order to enjoy life, we must remove vexation from our heart and put away pain from our body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. That word vexation means anger, irritation, grief. He says those things need to be removed from your heart. In other words, the preacher is saying we need to remove anxiety, worry, and stress. Why? Because stress and worry choke the joy out of life. Anxiety prevents joyful living. Friends, I think I'm standing on good ground here when I say this. Nothing good comes from worry. I believe that's why the preacher says, secondly, he says, remove vexation from your heart. Then he says, put away pain from your body. And, and I'm confused. I, at first, upon first reading of this, I'm like, so you want me to, like, heal myself? What are you saying? Take medication? What are you saying? I think he's connecting the two. Because what happens is, what's happening to us internally oftentimes manifests itself externally. According to Mayo Clinic, the common effects of stress on the body include headaches, muscle pain, chest pain, fatigue, Change in sex drive, upset stomach, restlessness. Nothing good comes from worry. Just, 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 just humor me for a moment. What good has come from you worrying? Thank you. You can tell me after service. But nothing good comes from it. That's why he's saying remove vexation and put away the pain from your body. And friends, this point, this point here of stress, it's crucial for today's generation. Our youth are experiencing an enormous amount of stress. 
I know all the parents are like, what? Ain't nothing wrong with them. They, they got everything. They got. I'm telling you, they are stressed out. Grades, image, and friends, this is a big one. Image is a big one now with the rise of social media. Performance and extracurricular activities, acceptance by their peers, relationships, whether that's boyfriend, girlfriend, or just friends that happen to be girls or boys, paying for tuition. These things are causing stress on our youth. And friends, if that's you today, God's word to you today is simply this. Remove it. Get rid of it. Banish it. It's not for you. He wants you to simply rest in his promise of daily provision. Now, this is not a sermon about stress, but let me give you some practical helps about what the Bible says about dealing with stress. First of all, it says if you're stressed, you need to pray. I didn't make it up. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings with guard and keep your hearts in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I said it already, if you find yourself worrying and stressed out, you pray, and then secondly, you prioritize God's kingdom. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. But before you start seeking the, the, the material things of the world, seek God's kingdom first. And God says, I can take care of the rest. You pray, you prioritize your kingdom but when you find yourself worried and stressed out, here's one I think we need. Remember your worth. Remember your worth. Brandon, that sounds very therapeutic. Is that in Scripture? Here it is. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the question in the text. Are you of not more value than they? If God takes care of the animals, how much more value are you, the crown of his creation, the only part of God's creation that's said to be created in the image of God? That's how much God cares and values you. If he takes care of them, he can take care of whatever you're worrying about. Pray, prioritize God's kingdom, remember your worth. It, look, and I know this is just the old preacher answer to everything. Trust God. I didn't make it up. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. That's where worry and stress comes in because we start trying to fix it all in our mind. We're leaning into our own understanding. And God says, instead of doing that, just trust me. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. The preacher, 
coming back to Ecclesiastes, says the other reason you should not worry, last clause of verse 10, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember, that word vanity, not only does it mean meaningless or pointless, but it also means vapor or breath. In other words, it's temporary. The preacher is saying, life is too short to be worrying. Especially for those of you who are young. Regardless of your chronological age, whether you're young at heart or whether you're middle-aged, I don't care. The preacher says life is too short to be stressing out. Tomorrow's worry only steals from today's joy. You can tweet that. So he says rejoice. Secondly, he says remember your creator in your youth. That's chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. In addition to rejoicing in our youth, we're also told to remember our creator in our youth. Remember is not merely mental recollection. Remember means to reflect on who God is and what God has done so that it leads to appreciation and commitment. What's interesting here, let, let, let me, this is important. I think this is an important observation because there's this stereotype that Christianity is a killjoy. It's boring. It's no fun. But the preacher says you can rejoice and be totally sold out to God in this life right now. Actually, you don't really experience joy until you completely surrender your life to God. That's when life got real for me. That's when I really started to enjoy all of life. Because we put joy in all these different things, idols, but they always let us down. We always have to keep coming back for more. That high. That drunkenness, it goes away. It leaves you wanting more. It, it gets you to the point, whatever the idol is, it gets you to the point where you have to say, is this all? But for those who, who, who are in Christ, we know that this life we can enjoy now, but this is not all. This is only a foretaste of the joy we will experience one day. Because we are headed to a place and a time where the wicked will cease from troubling and, and, and we will be able to enjoy God in his presence forevermore. No more sin, no more hurt, no more pain, no more disease, no more heart pain, no more disease, nothing. Life as it was meant to be, as God created, will actually be exper experienced in the new heavens and the new earth. So he says, you rejoice in this life, in your youthful days, but remember your creator in your youth as well. Question, if, while I'm in the observation stage of Bible study, the question that I have to ask is, why do we need to be told to remember? 
It's a simple answer, actually, because we forget. We, are, we tend to forget more easily when we experience seasons of prosperity. Think about it in our own country, the United States of America. When do we remember our creator? During times of tragedy. 9-11. Mass shootings. When do we forget our creator? When the economy is booming. Jobs are plentiful. We don't think about God as a country. And so we have to be told, remember your creator. Not just in our country, but even in our own homes. We can be forgetful of our creator. Don't, don't get me wrong. We, we still do the religious things. We, we read and we pray and, and we attend church. But sometimes doesn't it feel like you're just going through the motions? Sometimes doesn't it feel like it's just, well, I checked it off today. We're not as desperate for Jesus in times of prosperity as we are in seasons of adversity. Think about it. We, we are more forgetful of our Creator. When, 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 and by, by forgetful, I mean we're not as committed to our Creator. When, when the freezer is full, the savings account is at a comfortable amount, the mortgage is up to date, kids are well, bodies are healthy. We can be very forgetful people. So this is why we have to be commanded and reminded that we have to remember our creator. Jesus understood this. We, we, just, we just had the, the, the Lord's Supper. The reason we do this is out of obedience, first of all, because Jesus said, do this in, thank you, remembrance of me. Because we are forgetful people. So he says, remember your creator in your youth. I'm still in the observation stage of my Bible study, and I have to ask myself this question now. Why all of a sudden does the preacher tell us to remember our creator? Throughout his letter, he's never addressed God as the creator. But now he changes how he addresses God, and he says, now, remember your creator. He waits until the last few verses of the whole book to change God's name. I think it is because in our youth, in our daily life, we need to be reminded that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. In other words, we need to be reminded that God is the author and the originator of everything. And because he created everything, everything belongs to him. And so he is the owner of everything and everything else, everything that we have we're merely stewards over it. We need to be reminded that nothing belongs to us. 
We have to be reminded that God is our creator. Therefore, we owe our entire existence to him. Our life, our heart, our mind, our body, our soul. We need to be reminded that God is the one who gives us everything we have. God is the reason we have everything we have. Not just our life, but our family, our friends, our wisdom, our knowledge, our intelligence, our wealth, our possession. It all comes from the very hand of God. So this preacher, and I'm done, says, remember your creator in your youth because one day it's going to be too late. Too late for what? Too late to truly enjoy life and have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Brandon, where did you get this idea of too late from? I'm glad you asked. In this last, these last eight verses on three different occasions, the author says, after he says, remember our creator, he says, remember him in your youth before. 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 Before what? Verse 1. Before darkness arrives. He says, before the evil days. The evil days refer to the dark days from chapter 11, verse 8. The dark days of where you're not as youthful as you once were. Not evil as in being wrong or sinful, but evil just being the opposite of good or best. So he says, remember it before darkness arrives. Not only before darkness arrives, but remember your creator before decay advances. Verses 2 through 5. Friends, there is going to be a day. When all of our bodily senses will start to diminish and our body starts to decay. And that's what this, 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 this poem is about from verse 2 going on. He says in verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Remember, it's a poem. The sun, the moon, and the stars, they give off light. Remember, he just said in chapter 11, verse 7, light is sweet. Life, then, is sweet. Light also is symbolic of joy. And so he's saying that there's a day coming when the joy from life will diminish. He says the clouds will return after the rain. Think about it. When clouds come after rain, it's normally, normally gloomy. He says there's going to be a day when the keepers of the house tremble. Remember now, we're dealing with a poem. The keepers of the house refer to one's arms and hands. And he's saying one day they're going to grow weak and they're going to tremble. They're dark days. They won't be as effective and as useful. He says and the strong men are bent. Why? Because our legs and our back grow weak. I'm just quickly going through the poem. 
and the grinders cease because they are few. Grinders refer to teeth. He said, in your older days, teeth can become few and far between. Those who look through the windows are dim. A couple of years ago, I could preach to y'all like this. But now I have to preach to you like this. Because as you get older, for some of us, and I'm, I'm still young, by the way, I'm the youth that he's referring to for the record. Your eyesight begins to fail. Poem goes on to say, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. The door refers to the mouth. The lips sink, lips sink in because of the loss of teeth. You rise at the sound of the bird. You have to rise earlier than you used to. And all the daughters of song are brought low. Why? Because it's hard to hear them. You see how he's talking about this decay advancing? They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in their way. So you can't be as adventurous as you once were. He says the almond tree blossoms. When almond trees blossom, they're white. He says, so one day, your hair won't be the color it was when you, from when you were born. It's going to get gray and white. Or you just may not have any. He says, the grasshopper drags itself along. Think about it. The grasshopper in its best days are full of vigor and life. It's just hopping here and there and everywhere. But now he's saying in these dark days, you got to drag yourself alone. Desire fails. The loss of appetite. Why? Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Last before, verses 6 through 8, he says, Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And if you're anything like me, you're like, what is he talking about? Let me see if I can be of some help. The silver cord holds the golden bowl. The golden bowl houses the lamp or the light. And so he says there's going to come a time when the cord is broken and the bowl is broken. There's no more light. Why? Because now there's darkness. The pitcher holds water. Then you say, I can just go out to the cistern and get more. Only problem is the wheel's broken. Remember, water is essential to life. No water, no life, death. So he says, Remember your creator before death approaches. Verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
every day, we must remember that at any point in time, God could take his breath back from us. And we should live every day in light of that reality that we could die at any moment. For some, that may be depressing. But for believers, that's a source of hope and joy. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Friends, we all have an eternal destiny. The question is, where will you spend eternity? The Apostle Paul has made it clear that those who are believers in Jesus Christ have an eternal destiny home in heaven. But the Bible also makes it clear for those who are not in Christ are destined to a lake of fire for eternity where you will experience God's righteous wrath. The good news is that you can be rescued from God's wrath by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on a rugged cross, was buried and rose on the third day, ascended back to the Father, now sits at the right hand of the Father. If you believe in him, in him alone, nothing else, no one else, Jesus Christ in him alone, then you can be rescued, saved from the wrath of God. That is what should terrify you. God's wrath. But God has made a way for you to escape, to be rescued, to be saved from his wrath through Jesus Christ and him alone. So then, hear the urgency of this preacher. Remember your creator now. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Remember your creator now. One day, our faith will be sight and our joy will be complete. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the songs that have been sang that have reminded us of your goodness and all of your attributes. Thank you for the prayers that have been prayed, the prayer that adored you, and reminded us of your holiness and exposed us to our sinfulness so that we came to confessing you our sin in prayer and thanking you for Jesus Christ who frees us from our sin. Thank you for your word that has been read and proclaimed. Father, we pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Help us, God, to put into practice the things that we've learned and heard on today. God, forgive us for those times where we are forgetful of you. 
where we are not grateful and committed to you who created us, who saved us, redeemed us, loved us when we were unlovely. Now, God, as we depart from this place, we pray, God, that we would be reminded also that we are saved for a purpose, to go into the world, to make disciples, to let our light shine before men, that you may receive all glory. It is in the matchless, marvelous, majestic, and mighty name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. The church said together, amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week. Thank you for being here.